Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Well, if you brought a Bible this morning, open it up to two passages. One's in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, and the other is in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3. Genesis 15, Galatians chapter 3, a little bit later on in the message. For those of you that have been tracking, uh, we're in a series, we crossed the halfway point today, and we're in a series called Under Contract. We're looking to understand God's covenant that we have with Him through Jesus Christ. And here's the premise that even though anybody and everybody who has believed in and accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Bible says that they have been forgiven and cleansed and they are on their way to heaven. However, there is an awful lot of Christians, and I want to say, you know, I keep wanting to say most, but I don't have a measurement for that, and I could be wrong, but many, 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 not just a few, who will live their whole lives or are living their whole lives, even though they're saved and they're going to heaven, that everything that Jesus purchased belongs to them, they are completely clueless about the promises of God, about the integrity of God's word, about the fact that God is not just faithful when he feels like it, or when he thinks you deserve it, but God is faithful every single time to keep his word. And he wants us to understand this so much that way back in the, in the Bible, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, we have a record of it that says that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promises, that's you and I, those that have inherited all the things that God promised because of what Jesus did, the unchangeable character of his purpose. So he wanted to prove to us, I'm not going to change my mind. I'm a promise keeper. I'm not a promise breaker. I don't have all these little fine prints. Oh, you didn't read the fine print. You know, I did say that, but here's what I meant. That's not God. And the Bible says he so wanted to help us to understand this, that it goes on in Hebrews 6, 17 and says he guaranteed it with an oath. You and I would say he signed a contract in fact, if you expand that, that passage and you read a little bit, it kind of sets us up and says, we understand contracts as humans, and so God did something that we would really understand so that we would be convinced. And verse 19, he says, we have this, this contract, this guarantee as a sure and a steadfast anchor to the soul. In other words, this is what should anchor our mind. Our, will God really do that? Is that really what he meant? It should anchor our emotions when we feel afraid or insecure because the pressure's on and the time clock is running. And what if God you know, doesn't come through? It should anchor all those things so we just remain steadfast and say, nope, we have a contract. And God is faithful to his contract. He's the one who initiated the contract. This was his idea, not our idea. And he's the one who put it out there, and we've accepted this. And so we, we can be anchored. We can just be steadfast no matter what's going on around us, no matter what's happening in our emotions in us. We can be anchored to the word of God and to the faithfulness of God, and we can keep moving right forward. Now listen, this is always important. I mean essential. Super, super important. But 1 Timothy chapter 4 and passages like that tells us that as we get into the last days, deeper into the last days, it is going to be absolutely vital 
I don't mean for survival from a materialistic standpoint only. We may get to there. I don't know. But from a spiritual, eternal standpoint, it is going to be essential that we understand the integrity of God's word. That we understand that this is a God who keeps his word, keeps his promises. And it's going to be essential that we understand that because 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us that as we get deeper into the last days, there's going to be so many things pulling us, trying to get us to drift off course. And I'm not talking about just natural things. Those things will be there too. I'm talking about things that are more devious and more insidious and are smarter and more strategic than we even pretend to be. Doctrines that were created by demons, fashioned over years and centuries so that you and I would hear it and say, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. But it just dribbles us away from the integrity of the word of God. Not only that, but the works of the flesh, things that are happening inside of us where our cravings are challenged to not want to spend time in church, not want to spend time dedicated to God, not want to spend time walking these these moral and these integrity lines anymore. Our flesh is just being pulled by the culture to do it differently. And the Bible says people that don't understand the integrity of God's word, people that don't stay in inside of the secret place with the Holy Spirit and the word of God, The Bible says a great number of those will fall away. And that's when your eternal salvation is in jeopardy. Because you're not even really believing in and uh, and serving the Lord Jesus Christ anymore. This is so, so very important. So we begin to study, well, if God went to all this trouble and he was that passionate about that he signed a contract, he signed an oath, what does that mean? And we begin discovering that throughout the Bible, that's referred to as a blood covenant. In other words, it's not signed on a piece of paper with a pen. It's signed in blood because it's irrevocable. In fact, historically, not just in the, the church teachings, but historically in the world, the blood covenant is the most binding contract in, known to man, always has been, always will be. The only one way in, blood has to be shed. The only way you get out, something or someone has to die because it's a lifetime contract. So we begin looking at this, and here's one of the things we realize, that our Bible is not just a love letter from God, it's a legal document. It's set up in two contracts. We know it as the New Testament and the, or the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the word testament is the old English rendering of the word covenant, and so really it's the old covenant or the old contract which set up and gave way to the new contract or the New Testament or the new covenant that the Bible says has better promises and more advantages for us. So we begin to, understand, to learn and to understand what is this covenant about so we can be anchored and we can be confident and, and we can move, move, keep moving forward in God's plan no matter what's happening around us. Well, so far we, we learned that the blood covenant has three major parts and I'm going over this this morning because we're going to see them in a text in just a moment. But the first thing is, you, you have to understand what, why are we even signing a contract? What's this contract for? And this is common sense. We still use this with the documents we sign today. The second is, what, what are the parameters or what are the benefits and the boundaries? What am I signing in this contract? All of those are decided ahead of time. All of those are kind of rolled out so that everybody's clear. And then finally, you get to the actual signatures. Sometimes uh, in larger contracts, you'll have to sign a number of pages, an initial here, an initial there. Well, with a blood covenant, there's at least nine ceremonial commitments. Same thing. They're putting their name on the dotted line on nine different areas and nine different things. And we've covered all this. If you haven't 
joined us or you haven't been consistent, listen, the videos, the podcasts, all of those are free. We don't make any extra commission off them. Just go get them. And also, um, pick up one of these study guides. We've got a new one today. It looks like the old one. So if you looked at it on the table and you thought, I already have that, this is part two today. It'll be the next several lessons in this one. And so pick one up. They're absolutely free, or you can download those online. Uh, I've challenged you every week to join a connect group because I'm telling you, the learning is going to deepen and increase as you're discussing with other people and you're seeing how this applies to real life. And then there's one other uh, uh, resource that uh, I keep hearing great reports about, and it's a book that's a supplement called uh, God Swears to Keep His Promises. It's by uh, my brother in California, Pastor Jerry Dearman. However, I keep saying I don't get any commission off this, and so, and you can get a better price if you come and buy it through us, um, but that's a great, another great supplement too. So we're going to move on to the next segment today, but I want to tell you this little story first because it really helped me to understand what we're about to talk about. In 2005, I was standing on this platform and I'm kind of getting ready to open up a message like I'm doing now, and the back door opened and this really tall guy and his wife walked right in and sat right in the back, just, just in front of the sound booth, uh, right back there uh, where Andrew and Lauren Payton are sitting. And uh, of course, you can't help but notice him. He's like 6'11", right? And uh, he's, he's just this towering figure. And so I, I just went ahead and preached the message. And afterwards, he came up and he introduced himself as Jake Voskel and his wife, Jennifer, and told me that he was uh, one of the players on the what was then the Charlotte Bobcat team. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of cool. You know, I'm glad you visited. And so over the next number of weeks, he continued to come back, and over the next number of months, we got to know each other first as a pastor. He would be asking me questions, and we're just talking through life and family stuff and things that are related to, you know, some of the circles that he's going in. And then we became friends. And when you're a friend of an NBA player, uh, it comes with some benefits if you want to take advantage of them. For example, we got to go to a ton of free games. And I don't mean just sitting up in the nosebleed session. I mean sitting down in some, you know, some uh, lower level seats. And they were just, they were awesome seats, wonderful. But I'll never forget the first time he called me and he said, hey, listen, uh, I left your tickets uh, in the will call, but I left you a little something extra. He said, I, I want you to pick that up. And okay, so I get there and there's a lanyard there. It's a family and friends pass. And he comes out and meets me at the will call and says, here's what that means. That means that when halftime comes, uh, everybody else will be heading to the concession stand, but you have the option of stepping down on the court and then walking through the tunnel. And there's a green room that's for family and friends. And there's a great buffet back there and you can kind of relax and, you know, in big comfy chairs and just have some conversation, meet some of the other players' families. And he said, I'd really like for you to do that. And I thought, oh, okay, that sounds kind of fun. And, and it did sound fun until halftime. And I got the lanyard on, and now I'm kind of sheepishly like, okay, I hope I know what I'm doing here. And I'm stepping on the court. You know, I'm watching everybody go that way, and I'm going this way. And I can see, you know, some of the players' wives that, that I, I, I knew who they were at least. And I'm following them down the tunnel. I'm just positive any minute the security is going to stop me and say, what are you doing here? 
Why are you going down this hallway? But as soon as they saw, you know, the badge that said Voskel right across it, you know, I just kind of strolled on into the green room. And other people that are used to being there, they're legitimate family members, you know, they're laughing and talking and filling up their plates and, you know, getting things to drink. Some of the kids are running around. And, and here I am, I'm sitting in the corner like I know any minute I'm going to get kicked out. Somebody's already called security. And I'm going to get kicked out. Finally, somebody comes over and says, hey, you should have something to eat. And so, you know, I put a few things on my plate. Like, I don't want to put too much because I think you're stealing our food, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm totally feeling awkward. It was the most awkward thing. In fact, that first time, I couldn't wait for halftime to be over. And I was just happy to be back in the seat again where I felt like I belong. Yeah, these are nicer seats, but at least I'm with the general congregation or the general you know, crowd. And it's like, yeah, this is where I belong. Well, over time, that family friend's past showed up more and more. And in fact, the very next time uh, Jake's wife, Jennifer, was able to be there, she couldn't be there the first time, and so she met me and, and walked me around, introduced me to a bunch of, of players' families, you know, and, and made sure that I got more to eat than I did the first time, and I felt a little more comfortable, but I'm going to tell you, every time that I used that family and friends pass, I never, ever, ever felt completely comfortable. Because I knew that I have nothing to bring to the table. What am I supposed to do? I can't do a layup here. I'm not going to do push-ups. I, I have no athletic ability to prove, no, I belong here. I'm not blood relative of anybody. And I'm here just because I've got this past that says somebody is allowing me to be here on their dime. And so it was always awkward for me, and, uh, but I, I kept going. Every time that he, you know, he invited me, I would go, and I got to know some of the other players' families and eventually the other players. And, and it was a great thing until in 2000, uh, I think it was the end of the 2007-2008 series, Jake got traded to the Milwaukee Bucks. And the moment Jake left, so did my family and friends pass privilege, <laughs> which just validated it had nothing to do with me being such a great guy. Had nothing to do with me, you know, being back in the room and, you know, and, and just working it and, and, and knowing all my etiquettes. Had nothing to do. I could have been a complete oaf. It didn't matter. I had this past, this family and friends past. I want you to understand that today because that feeling, every time I walked down the tunnel and I was just aware, I'm humbled. I'm so grateful to be able to be here. I'm still trying to figure out how, how, how do I function in this thing. That really marked me and helped me to see in a brand new way what it means to have a covenant with God. Here's, here's the key, through Jesus Christ. Because when we talk about our covenant with God, which we know in the New Testament is salvation. It's the whole salvation package. It's not just we got born again and we get to go to heaven one day. It's all the stuff that God promised that we could take advantage of right here as we're growing and maturing before we get up there. That's like a whole salvation, salvation package. It's a contract that has a lot of different benefits that go beyond just eternal salvation, even though that's the most important one. And so uh, the more that I understood that, the more I, I realized, oh, that's why sometimes I feel awkward. When I go into prayer into Hebrews 4.16, invites me to come confidently into the throne of grace and to obtain all the mercy that I need and to find all the grace that I need in abundant supply. There's a buffet table labeled at late, laid out and I'm invited to come confidently in there, but I feel kind of awkward because I know in and of myself, you don't deserve to be in here. What are you doing in here? Other people deserve to be in there, but you don't deserve to be in here. And I have to remind myself, oh, well, no, I, I do, not in and of myself, not on my best day. 
But I do because I'm wearing this righteousness pass that because of what Jesus did and because of who Jesus is, I'm free to walk right past the security, right down the hall to be the first in line if I want and get my plate and just fill it up as many times as I want. I'm free to receive and to fellowship and to talk. I'm absolutely free because it's not based on me. But once we understand that, I mean, and understand it from a biblical perspective, we can see it, not just feel it. And I'll tell you what, you take away a major weapon of the enemy that he uses to discount Christians all the time, that you will not walk down that hall, you will not come to the throne of grace, you will not receive the very thing you're desperate for, because you're measuring, yeah, but I don't really deserve that. Even if I'm saved, you know, I've read my Bible in a few days here, you know, I'm just not living, I had some thoughts and I had some attitudes, and it's not based on you. It's based on what Jesus purchased. And the sooner you understand that, the sooner you will walk down the hall. And if you're having a bad week, it just makes you all the more grateful and all the more humble that somebody provided something for you that you never could have deserved and never could have earned. And that's exactly what we're going to look at today. We're going to talk about the fact that it's Jesus. The covenant's not between us and God. The covenant, the contract is between God and this sinless God-man, mediator, Messiah, Jesus. And that way the contract is solid. It can never be broken. I can't break the contract because it's not really with me. I'm just a beneficiary of the contract. But Jesus is the one who signed the contract with God. And because Jesus is never going to break it and God's never going to break it, this contract remains solid and remains sure every single time I go, I can receive because I know that this contract will will, will happen the way it said. Now, I ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. And this is where we're going to start looking at this and we're going to understand it. And then Paul's going to pick it up in Galatians chapter 3. Now, we could start much earlier because I told you as you begin to recognize the legitimacy of a contract or a covenant, you're going to see it all over the Bible. And if you're looking, you don't have to be a theologian. You can start seeing it show up as early as Genesis chapter 3. Really earlier than that. But Genesis chapter 3 is where it gets super obvious when, God, when uh, after man, Adam and Eve sin, when God comes and says, but I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to reclaim you, and that redemption is going to happen through the seed of the woman. So somewhere in the lineage of mankind is going to come an individual that will be able to buy back what was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. And then God did something that turned that, that next that you and I are more familiar with as we understood how the covenant works. God took the fig leaves off of Adam and Eve that they were hiding themselves with, and God clothed them with the blood-stained skins of animals that had been sacrificed. That was a covenant. That was God sealing his promise that he said, and we go on from there. But when we get into Genesis chapter 15, the whole scenario just becomes so glaringly obvious and how it relates to us that it's really one of the most dramatic scenes in the Bible, and we're going to look at it today. So let me kind of give you a a running start. We're going to start reading in verse 12, but let me remind you, we've touched on it before. Starting in verse 7, God comes and reminds uh, Abram about what he had promised him. And Abram's been thinking about this and been trying to wrap his head and his heart around it. And in verse number eight, Abe Abe actually questions God's integrity. Now, he didn't do that outright like, I don't think you're telling the truth. He said something like this, how do I know? How do I know for sure that you're going to do this? Well, he is God. 
He is a holy God who doesn't lie, but, but that's not good enough for Abram. And so he says, but how do I know that you'll really do it? I know you promised it, but how do I know you'll really do it? By the way, that's where we can relate, right? We do the same thing. The same. We might have just gotten done encouraging, encouraging somebody else and saying, let me tell you, God's faithful to his word. And then we turn around the next day and we find ourselves in a situation and we are battling thoughts. But how do I know that God will really do this? Well, this is what Abram was going through. And so in verse 10, God responds to that dilemma. And God says, tell you what, I want you to bring me animals. And he lists all these categories of animals. And we're not told that he gave any more instruction after that. Because at this point in time, the covenant was so relevant to everyday culture that as soon as Abram heard that, man, he, he peaked up and he just took off and he went and got all those animals. And the next time we find out that Abe is back on the scene, he's already cut the animals. He's slaughtered them. He's created the blood trail. And Abram's kind of standing around like, okay, all right, if, you, if you're going to sign a contract, if you're going to seal a covenant, let's do this. And so this is where we, we pick up in verse number 12. The, the covenant ground is set. The blood trail's laid out. Abram's been sitting there for a while waiting for God to show up. And verse 12 says this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now let me just help you with this. Scholars will point out and admit that he, it was a lot of work to slaughter all those animals and get that blood trail ready. And then he'd be guarding it for all that time in the hot sun. And so part of that was fatigue. But what gets really interesting is when you realize that this term, deep sleep, is, comes from one Hebrew word, and it happens to be the same word used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, when God gave Adam a divine sedative, put him under divine anesthesia so that he could take out his rib and create the body of woman, the exact same term. And so we realize here that Abram's deep sleep was not just fatigue. It was God setting the stage so he could do something very, very intentional. Let's go on. While Abe's sleeping now, behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Again, once Abe's in the, under this anesthesia, then all of a sudden Abe can sense the weightiness and the gravity and all of this gathering evil and wickedness. He could sense what's going on around him and what's going on in the world, which is important for us to understand that because many, many times in the Bible and many times in our own lives, those two go hand in hand. When God begins to speak, when God begins to, to highlight a promise or begins to give you an instruction to take the next step, what you'll begin to sense right away or shortly afterwards is, here comes the enemy. In fact, Jesus taught that in Mark chapter 4. He said, any time that God begins pulling the word of God out there, he begins showing you something or promising you something, Satan comes immediately. And he'll just use strategy after strategy after strategy. It's all for one thing. It's not really about you. It's about nullifying that promise, that word of God, trying to confuse it. But it's not just in the New Testament. We have it in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 23 says that God prepares us a table, not in the flowery sunshine meadow, but he prepares us a table in the valley of the shadow of death, right in the presence of our enemy. And so we have to understand that's probably why, one of the reasons why that Abe was struggling to believe. And listen, we're going to face the same challenges. You're going to be able to read the word of God and say, that's exactly what it said. And the, the deep question is, but why can't I just feel great about it? Because faith is a fight. 
You've got to hang on to what the Word of God says until your mind gets renewed, your mind gets convinced, and then it begins to sink down into your spirit, and then the two get on the same page, and pretty soon you know you believe God's Word, and nobody can talk you out of it. I don't care what the circumstances say. So it's a struggle, and we see that Abe's very aware of this struggle. Verse 15, God begins to, uh, I'm sorry, we're in verse number 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain... In other words, I'm about to erase all doubt from your mind. I'm going to show you some things and I'm going to do some things that you won't have to anymore question whether I'm telling the truth. And then God begins to list those, those, those uh, preliminary attributes. God begins to say, okay, now this is why I'm doing the covenant and this is what this promise is all about. And we find that, keep going in verse 13. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. So that's a prophetic foretelling that the, the people of Israel, which would all come from Abraham's descendants, would go into slavery to Egypt and they would be in, in slavery for 400 years. But God said, not only will they go into slavery, but he said, but after 400 years, he said, I'm going to bring them out of slavery, and I'm going to do it in a most profound way so that everybody knows that I'm the God that made a covenant with Abraham, that I would bring these, these people back, and I would deliver them, and I would give them what I promised them I would give them. We're in verse 15 now. He comes back to Abram, and he says, as for you, Abe, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. So God said, this is what's going to happen in your future with, with, your, with your descendants, with your children, and your children's children, and so on and so forth. That's really great, but what about me? And God says, yep, I know you're surrounded by darkness. I know you can feel all this. I know it's causing a lot of insecurity and a lot of doubt. But he said, I want to reassure you that you're going to live to a good old age and you're going to do everything that you were supposed to do. Verse 16, and they, now he's back to the descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation. Notice this, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Here, here's something else that we can't forget about the, the plans and the purposes, the promises that God's unfolding. Oftentimes we're believing God for something that's right here in our life. It's a need. It's something we got to have. And we don't understand that there's a lot of other factors involved. There's other people involved. God sometimes is say, you're doing everything right and you just need to keep doing it because God's waiting for somebody else that needs to participate in this at some level. Maybe he wants to use them to bring the blessing through. Maybe he's going to use you once you get the blessing to be a blessing to them. But he's orchestrating this giant puzzle and sometimes it takes longer than we think. Not because we're not doing the right thing. Not because God just likes to drag his feet just to torture you. But because th this is more complex than we ever realize, nevertheless, God will, will, will absolutely every time he will do what he promised he said he would do. Now, now that he's laid out, th this is what I'm promising and this is, what, this is why we're doing the covenant. I want you to be sure. I want you to be confident. And, and this is how it's going to affect not just you, but your generations. Now we get to kind of the really good part where this big dramatic scene unfolds. So we're in verse number 17. 
It said, and when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Between these pieces, for those of you that have been with us, we studied the slaughter of the animal, laying them to so that all the blood spilled, and you've got this really mushy, gushy pathway of blood, and that's what the two parties would walk in, and they would swear an oath in, in the blood of that animal and say, if we don't do what we're swearing to do, then what happened to these animals will happen to us. And so in the middle of this blood trail, all of a sudden we see that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch shows up. Verse 18 says, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I will give you this land. Now we're going to come back to that scripture because you have to see some more, but let me first give you some more practical information that will help you to frame in uh, kind of a, the, the Bible understanding of the blood covenant. There's really uh, two, two kinds of covenant that you'll find through history. The first one's called a parity covenant, and, it, and it's this agreement between two equal parties. So sometimes you'll see in the Bible where two kings came together and, and they kind of, you know, formed a treaty together about how their nations would function. Sometimes you'll see two individuals or like today, you know, we, we have that uh, a marriage in a sense is a parity covenant. It's two, two individuals that are committing to one another. They're both of equal value, of equal importance, but they're committing things to one another. That's a parity covenant. But there's another one called a suzerainty covenant. You don't have to remember these terms. Uh, the term suzerainty, though, uh, comes through the French, through a French, French background by way of the Latin language, and it really is talking about a sovereign covenant. And this is a covenant that's unilateral or one direction. It's not between two equal parties. There's no negotiation here. This is where a ruler will we'll put together an agreement and offer the agreement to those that are under him through a representative. So they will choose a representative of their tribe or of their village or of their city or their nation, and that representative will come to the ruler, and the ruler will say, okay, here's what I'm offering you. If you'll do this, then here's what I can promise you. If you don't do that, then here's what the consequences are going to be. There's no negotiation. It's, a, it's kind of a one-way offer. And so uh, the ruler makes all the terms, and the subjects, if you will, gets to either accept or reject them. Now, understanding those two differences, every covenant that we have with God is a suzerainty covenant. This is really important especially in your everyday Christianity, because God, as a righteous, sovereign God, he's the one who sets the terms in the word of God. He's the one who makes the promises and says, if you will do what I'm asking you to do, then here's what I promise you in a covenanted oath that I will do for you. And those promises are not just external. That's kind of the shallow portion of it. You know, the, the little tiny pieces of fruit or the leaves on the tree. The real roots of it have to do with what's happening inside of us to bring us into holiness, to allow us to live pure lives, to allow us to live at the highest level that God's created us to be. And then it gets out to provision and protection and wisdom and, and understanding and insight and then fulfillment and joy and all of those things that life is really all about. These are the things that God's offered. Well, then we come along and in our broken, sinful, we can never be our perfect self all on our own. We come along and we get to choose either we receive his offer or we don't. Now that's kind of a muddy statement because Christianity today is, well, no, you don't, you don't have to choose like that. You just like, well, I like this, but I don't like that. Well, I love this right here, but I'm not even sure that I even care about. I don't even want to understand that. 
And that's not at all how these covenants work. We get to respond in humility. We get to respond in in repentance, in obedience. We get to respond in gratitude because this great sovereign king didn't have to offer anything, but he did. And it's it's such an overwhelming offer that we need him to confirm it in a contract because it's too good to be true. We can't believe him just because he promised he went, how do I know though? Come on now. That's really, how do I know? And so he has to sign a contract and we get to either receive it and, and enjoy all the benefits or we get to walk away and we reject it. Now, this is important that we understand that because we're coming back to Genesis 15 verse 17 and notice this. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. Remember, that's on that pathway of blood. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. Well, that's kind of a, an interesting picture then at Abram sleeping, and while he's sleeping, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch kind of walk through those pieces. You're like, what in the world's that? Well, scholars have a kind of a slight variation on what they believe, but they're both very complementary. Uh, both of them, uh, all, all scholars, I should say, agree that this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch, they were what's called theophanies or they were visible manifestations of God in the Old Testament. In fact, it's not the only time these things showed up. There's a whole bunch of scriptures. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 is pretty popular. That's when uh, Moses is called to the burning bush. And he's talking not to a shrub. He's talking to a living God that is manifesting himself with fire and with smoke. Not only that, Exodus 13, 21 says that the children of Israel were led across the desert, were warmed at night, and were guided through the, you know, the, 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 the rough t- terrain by a pillar of fire that showed up at nighttime. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, God calls the people of Israel to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, and the top of Mount Sinai, the Bible says, looked like a volcano had gone off. There's fire everywhere, and these big billows of smoke keep coming down, and it was just so terrifying that the people of Israel said, nah, we're we're not even going to go close to that. Moses, you go see what he wants and come back and tell us. But God was calling them there. And finally, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1, verse 27, and then in chapter 8, verse 2, he has a vision of of the Lord. And when, when he's describing him, he says, it's like he was on fire from his waist down. All you could see was just just this fire, this incredible fire from his waist down. And so oftentimes this particular appearance or manifestation of God is used in the Bible and certainly it's true here. But, But a more specific interpretation says it's not just a theophany, it's not just a manifestation of God, it's what they call a Christophany. In other words, this is an appearance of Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Before he was born on earth and we got to behold him and the people got to rub shoulders with him and grow up with him, in the the Old Testament, Jesus would often show up and this is one of those Christophanies. And he showed up as mankind's representative to walk in that blood trail of a suzerainty sovereign covenant. And God's on one side saying, I promise I will do this. And Jesus is walking through the blood trail and he's, he's holding up the other end. Now, this is the most defining part of a blood covenant when two parties walk through and they, and they swear and they declare these blessings and cursings. So it's really important that Abram, even though the promises were being given to him, Abram's not in on this. 
Because Abram's going to break the covenant just as sure as anything. Abram does not have the ability to walk perfectly and flawlessly before God. Abram was born into sin, and Abram's learning to grow and follow God. So God puts him under anesthesia, and Jesus in his pre-incarnate self shows up, and he walks this blood trail. And here's Jesus passing through the trail of blood, sealing the Abrahamic covenant, and not only pronouncing or agreeing or accepting the blessings from a sovereign God, but taking on himself the consequences of the curse if the covenant was broken. Well, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to keep reading your Bible, and you realize the covenant was broken over and over and over. It feels like every page of the Old Testament, the children of Israel flip-flopping back and forth, and they're constantly just beating up and breaking the covenant. And so God did a couple of things. He would use opposing nations like the Amalekites and the Persians and the Greeks and the Babylonians and, and then later on the Romans, and he would use that to kind of quarantine them. So it wasn't really the punishment for breaking the covenant, although there were consequences, but he would just quarantine quarantine them so that their sin just wouldn't keep growing and, and they would kind of get their attention. Not only that, God comes along with Moses and he established this, this Old Testament uh, sacrifice system so that he could provisionally cover their sin. It really couldn't erase the curse of the covenant because only death could do that. But it would allow them to demonstrate what, you know, my heart is to be in right relationship with God. And so they would bring a blood sacrifice of an animal and God would say, okay, I can't forgive you completely, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an extension. I'm going to give you an atonement. I'll cover you until the next time we come around this, this discussion, and then we'll see if your heart still wants to trust in me. And that happened all through the Old Testament until we got to the New Testament. And here comes Jesus. Now, this time he's born in flesh, the sinless God-man representative, and he's the one who came and gave his blood. He became the Lamb of God, and he paid the price not just to repair the breach and, and to satisfy the, the brokenness of the old covenant, which had, there had to be a death because that, that's what the covenant was. But not only that, but through his death and resurrection, he, uh, he also purchased us a brand new covenant and he sealed it forever. And this time, Jesus is never going to break the covenant. So we have a representative now that is a living representative that has sealed this covenant forever. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. He's grabbing all of this from Genesis 15 and throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And he's bringing it to Galatians chapter 3. And that's where we're going to finish up today. So if you'd like to turn, go to Galatians chapter 3. And Galatians chapter 3 in just a few verses is going to cover most of what I just talked about. But he's going to show us three things that Jesus did to be the representative and to seal a contract for you and I that, number one, took all the pressure off of us. We couldn't earn it. We, we couldn't possibly qualify. There's nothing we could bring to the table that they would say, okay, yeah, you, you, you deserve to be in here. We don't. And we never can. And if you thought, well, yeah, but that was before I, I served, that was before I gave mine to Christ. Really? Measure yourself after you gave your life to Christ. I mean, have you gone days? Have you gone weeks? Have you gone months as a sinless human being? I haven't. I'm growing and I'm maturing. But I realize all the time, oh my goodness, I am desperately in need of a Savior. I can't be the best version of myself, be on top of my game every minute of every day, 24-7. That's what the covenant requires. I can't do that. But Jesus did. 33 years on the earth, never sinned one time. 
And then he turned around as an innocent man and laid his life down and gave it away for the, for the sins of the whole world. And now the Bible, and then he rose again, and now the Bible says he's in heaven and he's sealing this. So three things today, and let me just go and walk through Galatians 3. We're just going to walk through a few verses. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Listen to this. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. This is the first thing that Jesus did. And by the way, we know this religiously, many of us do, but I'm hoping it's going to find a different landing place and a different understanding in your mind. Number one, Christ purchased our new covenant with God through his blood. Listen to me, you and I couldn't contribute anything. We didn't contribute anything. We didn't. We brought our broken, sinful self to the table, and, and God gave us this, well, I'm, I'm going to say a lanyard to connect it to the story I said, but really, it's a robe of righteousness. And now you and I are righteous. We are pre-qualified to, to enjoy everything that God has, not because of what we did or what we ever can do. We don't have it in ourselves to bring anything to the table, but we can come to the table confidently every time because of what Jesus purchased and what he did. If you, listen, once you understand that, I'm telling you, you disarm the enemy from one of the greatest and most effective weapons he uses against you. Well, but you know, you don't deserve this. And, and from anywhere from I did something really bad or I just didn't do enough good. The margin's wide and he uses any of those little notches on there to convince you that that promise doesn't belong to you because you don't qualify. Listen, you never qualified. You never could have qualified. The only reason you and I can walk down that corridor, walking into the, you know, to the gates of heaven and through, through the corridors to get to the throne room is because we're wearing the righteousness that Jesus purchased, free and clear. Done deal. And the more you understand that, listen, all it does is cause you to be more grateful, cause you to be more humble, cause you to just, you know, to be more submitted to the things of the Lord because you know that you don't have any merits of your own to enjoy what God promised he would give you. And when you do that, then you go confidently in, into the throne of grace and you find out, wow, there's, there's like an abundance of mercy. God says, I know you didn't do what you're supposed to do, and, but I'm not going to give you what you actually deserve. I'm going to hold that from you. I'm going to extend mercy and I'm not going to give you that consequence because Jesus already paid for it. Instead, I'm going to extend all this grace to you. I'm going to give you something you could never have deserved because Jesus paid for that too. And this is all what happened because of what Christ did. And he did it because he swore to Abraham. He swore to God with Abraham. And then Jesus came back and fulfilled the old and purchased us anew. So that's number one. Go with me. Keep going in, in uh, Galatians chapter 3. Let's look at verse 14. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse in verse 13. Verse 14, he did it so that in Christ Jesus... In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's those of us that don't have a Jewish heritage. So I wasn't born Jewish, uh, but, but I can still be part of the blessing that was given to Abraham and all of his descendants might come on the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here's number two. Christ sealed 
our new covenant with God, with his resurrected life. Now, this word sealed is kind of a complicated word to understand in the New Testament. So I'm just going to throw a couple of other descriptives attached to it that you could almost interchange them and it would still work scripturally. Uh, We said Christ sealed our new covenant with God. We could say Christ activated our new covenant with God, with his resurrected life. So when he died, he purchased it. But when he came back to life, he activated it. He said, okay, so th- this thing's working now. It, it's, it's functioning now. And the covenant went into action uh, once, once Jesus rose to the dead. And, uh, and it was the finished work. That's why when you hear that we can receive something from the Lord to the, through the finished work of Jesus. The finished work was not just the cross. It was the cross and then the resurrection. That was the completed, finished work. Once the cross happened, it was purchased. And once the resurrection happened, it was sealed. It was activated. It was initiated. It went into effect from that point on. And you and I became thoroughly justified. It's like we never sinned, just as if I'd never sinned because Jesus paid the price and eternally qualified. We can walk down that corridor anytime you want. You can walk into the throne of grace anytime, five times a day, 20 times a day, and you can do it with confidence. And every time the buffet table is restocked and, and the, the attendants are there, yeah, thank you for coming, Mr. Dearman. What can I get you today? What can I do? The Holy Spirit's walking you down. I mean, you, you can live in there if you want to. It's yours. It's limitless. And Jesus paid for it just so you could have it. By the way, I've got lots of supporting scriptures in those workbooks. Uh, this is not just, you know, I'm just kind of not threading a needle. It's all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, so you can find those. I'm not taking time to turn in today. So that's number two. Here's number three, that not only did Christ purchase our new covenant, not only did he initiate or sustain or activate it, but number three, uh, Christ sustains our new covenant with God and he does it as our mediator. Now listen to to verse 15, Galatians 3. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, stop, a contract. So he's saying, I'm trying to help you relate to what's what's true spiritually by, by helping you to connect to what you know to be true in your everyday life. So when you sign an everyday contract, he said, everybody knows that once you sign that contract, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. In other words, once you sign a contract, contract to contract, really hard to get out of it. You can't say, oh, you know what I forgot? Can we do this? Nope. Done deal. Two signatures are on it. It's been stamped by a notary or approved by, by the witnesses or the lawyers. And it, it's, that's it. It's solid. You're, you're in for the duration of the contract. He says, yeah, in the same way, He goes on and he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. We read in another translation to his seed. But it does not say and to offsprings, referring to many or plural. He said the scripture, the contract was very intentional, but referring to one. And when God way back with Abraham said, I'm making this covenant to your offspring singular, Paul helps us to understand, and to your offspring means Christ. That means that while Abram was sleeping, and he could sense the weightiness, the gravity of what was happening, and that flaming torch and that smoking fire pot showed up as Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God, as he walked through there, God made promises to him, 
And because you and I are now in Christ, in a relationship with Christ, we have that family friends badge, right? Because we're in Christ, God will uphold his promises to you and I because he swore to Jesus that he would. So if you're thinking, yeah, but you know, he's probably looking at me saying, you know, I'd like to do it for you. I really would. But I know how you've been this week. Nope. No, no, no. He doesn't even look at us. He's looking at Jesus. He's looking at what Jesus said. But I'm going to go a step farther than that because Hebrews chapter 9 brings something else out about Jesus' role in all of this as sustaining the covenant. Listen to Hebrews 9 verse 15. It says, therefore he, this is talking about Jesus now, after he rose from the dead and he went back to heaven, the Bible says that he's seated at the right hand of God. It shows a place of prominence, a place of authority. We read last week, he's been given the name that was above every name. So at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee bows, every, every tongue confesses that Jesus really is the master. He really is the Lord. He really has the final say. And that's everywhere from, you know, every universe below the earth, every spiritual dimension. Jesus is the Lord now. He just is. And so this says here that therefore he, Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, that's you and I, may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, don't think just eternity. Think the eternal contract. All of these benefits they initiate while we're here on earth. Isn't that what Jesus told us to pray? Pray that thy kingdom comes right here on earth, just like it already is happening and will continue to happen in heaven. So we have healing and health available to us here. It'll be there, but we don't need the healing part because nobody will be sick. We have provision available to us here, but, but we, don't, we won't need, need it in the same, same way because there's nothing lacking up there. There's no poverty up there. Everything's working, et cetera, et cetera. And so he says that they, we can receive the promised inter- eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them or us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, the first covenant, it was broken. And until that one's paid for, we can't go and upgrade the covenant till the old contract was paid. But Jesus came and he took care of the old contract. He took care of the debt. And then he moved us and he purchased a new contract. And then he he sealed it and he activated it forever and ever. And now he mediates it. Now, uh, uh, last thing I'm going to say. A mediator is a negotiator. A mediator sits between two parties and says, okay, there's a disagreement. I'm going to find you guys the best solution. And so here's where a mediator, where Christ becomes the mediator, because on one side, you have a holy God who part of his role is to be the judge, the righteous judge of the whole earth, a judge that can never compromise. But he passionately loves us. But on the other hand, he's got all these, you know, all these laws and all these principles that have to stay pure and holy, and he hates sin. He doesn't hate the sinner, but he hates sin because sin messes everything up. Sin distorts the picture. Sin distorts his ability to flow life and joy and all of these abundant, wonderful things that we'll experience in limitless proportion in heaven. But sin messes all that up. And so God loves us, but he hates sin. And he's he's got this big challenge. On the other side of the table is you and I. And we're in a real pinch because we're born into sin. And even after we accept the Lord Jesus Christ and we're declared righteous, the Bible says we're still in this growing period of becoming holy. 
We're still learning how to live as righteous people. We're still learning to overcome weaknesses and be the best version of who God's created us to be. That's a lifetime journey. And so we're kind of messing up here and messing up there. And so we've got this tension between these two. And thank God we have a mediator who steps in. The Bible says that Jesus in the courts of heaven, in front of this holy judge, Jesus acts as this defense attorney. And something like this, Jesus says, listen, Your Honor, uh, I'm not going to to deny that so-and-so, that Pastor Gill did exactly what he's being accused of. What I am going to say is, you have to exonerate him from that because my blood already paid for that. Not only do you have to exonerate him for what he just did, but you have to remember that he's pre-qualified not just to be forgiven for what he did, but to receive all of the things that he would have received as if he never did them. And the judge with a smile on his face slams his gavel down and said, not guilty. And this happens, listen to me, every single day. Every minute of every day, Jesus is in court on your behalf. Jesus is defending you every single time. Not whether you did or you didn't. That's a family matter. The Holy Spirit will come talk to you about that. But Jesus is defending your legal right to receive the promises of God, to receive everything that God has. Listen, this is why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. He says, there is therefore right now, after you accept Jesus, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Never again. Conviction, yes. Where the Holy Spirit says, hey, I need to talk to you about that because that's not really how God wants you to live. I don't want you to feel all that guilt and that, you know, that tension inside. I want you to live full of joy. I want you to be excited about your life. I want you to crave good things, not be fighting off the temptation of bad things. I want to talk to you about that. So conviction's good. Condemnation keeps telling you, yeah, see, God's not going to do it. God can't do it because you don't deserve it. There is therefore now no condemnation ever again. For those that are in Christ Jesus, why? Because the law of the spirit of our life in Christ has completely and forever set us free from the law of sin and death. We're free. And the moment you understand that, as awkward as you might feel, as remorseful as you might feel, as much of the guilt you're trying to peel off because you did it and you know you did it and quite frankly, you kind of like doing it, but you know it wasn't right. Listen to me, you'll put that lanyard, that righteousness badge on, and you'll walk straight down that hallway. And you'll say, I'm only here because of the blood of Jesus. Lord, I'm desperate for you today. I need all that mercy that you promised me I would find. I need you to just pour it over my life today. Extend mercy, mercy, mercy to me. And then, Lord, as I'm washing and cleaning that off, then I need you to fill my life with grace because I'm in trouble here because I have some needs because I can't live with this insatisfaction or this insecurity. I can't live all bottled up anymore. I want to be everything you called me to be. That's exactly why you and I have a covenant with God, but not on our own merits because that covenant came through Jesus Christ. And when you understand that and you rely on the finished work of Jesus, I'm telling you, everything changes. Everything changes. You'll never get talked out of your blessing again. You'll keep moving forward. Hope you've been blessed by God's word this morning. Stand to your feet. Let me pray for you. We're going to respond to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible plan that you've had in motion for thousands of years, for the heart that you and the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit put into this design. For Jesus, you coming and doing exactly what you promised you would do. 
Now you emptied yourself. You died a horrific death and shed your blood so that you could satisfy the covenant, the old covenant, and then walk us into the new covenant. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to be the teacher now. Talk to everybody here individually. Take these, these, these things that we've talked about, some of them complex and some of them complicated, but break them down individually to each of us and convince us that Jesus was enough. That we can come to God on our best day and we can come to God on our worst day. And we can receive everything he has for us because of what Jesus did. Jesus, we thank you. We worship you today. We're so grateful that you gave what you gave and we can have what what you gave us. And we commit ourselves to you afresh in Jesus' name. for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.